Hello listeners and welcome to what is now the fourth season of Pebble in the Pond podcast. We appreciate your support throughout the first three seasons uh, as we get our listenership up towards that 16,000 mark. Uh, thank you everybody, we appreciate it and um, yeah, and what a privilege it is to bring you uh, these stories from amazing people. We are here and we are aiming to create a ripple for change for mental health. My name is Sam Stewart and I am the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year our association hosts several leading mental health conferences that allow us the chance to meet and connect with the most fascinating and and accomplished people in the mental health space. Listen in as we go one-on-one with the people changing the face of mental health in Australia and New Zealand. From lived experience speakers through to researchers, academics, leading community organisations and influential industry leaders. Our Pebble in the Pond podcast episodes may contain content, themes or topics of discussion that may be triggering for some listeners. If you feel you need any assistance with your mental health at any time, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or visit the Get Help page for additional resources at anzmh.asn.au. It is our responsibility to genuinely and actively involve First Nations Australian, Maori and Pacifica peoples in their representative bodies in all aspects of addressing health and well-being needs. This week's podcast guest, Indy Clark, is the Executive Officer of the Koori Youth Council and takes great pride contributing to work that gives back to his communities. Born in Melbourne and raised in Mildura on Lachi Lachi country, Indy is a proud Muddy Muddy, Wemba Wemba, Boon Wurrung, Trawulwai, and Lyle Man. He is a passionate advocate for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and the power of strength-based approaches and Aboriginal knowledge systems. Indy believes that the path to positive change starts with empowered families and communities, as well as a holistic approach to healing and well-being. Indy joins me to share his knowledge and insights from his last five years as the Executive Officer of Kuru Youth Council and their framework for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander youth participation the first resource of its kind in the country. Hello listeners and thanks for joining us for another episode. Today it gives me great pleasure to introduce Indy Clark. Indy, welcome. Uh, thank you. Thank you for having me. No worries, mate. Mate, tell our listeners where you're from, the country you're from and, and where your mob heralded from. Yeah, deadly. Yeah, well first I just want to acknowledge the country we're on and thank Uncle John this morning for his welcome and yeah, my name's Indy Clark. I'm a proud Muddy Muddy, Wamba Wamba, Bunurong and Twaloi man on my father's side. And then on my mother's side, I'm a proud Lardle and Yagle man. So yeah, quite a big mob, but I grew up on Lachi Lachi country, but now live in Wurundjeri country in Nam, Melbourne. Cool, mate. And that's, do you get back home very often? Prior to COVID and obviously all the lockdowns and that, normally, yeah, six times a year. It's a fair bit away from Melbourne, yeah. 600 kilometres, but trying to get back as much as possible. All about family and love family, so my community very much made me who I am today. And you have some of your family in Melbourne with you or you? Yeah, a few. As I said, my dad, in my presentation today, dad was one of 11, uh, nan was one of 13 and uh, so on. There's a big family. family. Uh, So yeah, lucky to have family with me in Melbourne. Tell us, Indy, where did it start for you? Tell us a bit about the schooling and your upbringing and then where you thought, what propelled you to get into what you're doing today? Yeah, so as I kind of said this morning, for me, kind of being 
somewhat born into this life. My nan was a massive social justice advocate and leader and was an incredible woman that raised 11 children on her own but also took in many foster kids and through her work and a number of other community champions, they were kind of deadly and were able to kind of advocate for the Sunraysia Aboriginal Corporation at the time, which now is known as Mallee District Aboriginal Services. My dad was all about Aboriginal education, was the same. So for myself, yeah, went to school, young age, was born in Melbourne in on Wurundjeri country and moved back to Mildura when I was four and a half on Lachi Lachi country and pretty much to go to school with my family. As I said, dad is a really big um, family man, so it was deadly to go to school in Mildura and be surrounded by a mob and just doing deadly things. And so, mate, where did it spark your interest to, obviously your parents were pretty important part of the direction that you took from school and, and what made you passionate about culture and, and Indigenous well-being. But tell us, what, what really was the catalyst for you to get in there and have a go? Yeah, I say this all the time. I think from most mob and just obviously a very generalist conversation and statement that I'm about to make, but we're all passionate about our culture and it's all within our spirit, right? And it depends on whether we're connected to that space or not. And, you know, as, as a young person myself, I probably was walking around disconnected there for a bit and kind of as a young teenager doing, young teenage men was on my path of what I thought was great and doing good things and to an extent probably was a bit disconnected from my spirit and what I wanted to do. And as I said, it was in education and in particular it was year 11. I remember, and I was saying this in my speech before, but... For me, mainstream education, probably we didn't get along due to the fact that normally I'd have riddles in my head that I needed to unpack with the teacher or kind of have a conversation around that. And due to kind of you know, the setting of school systems, 30 kids, one teacher, they don't have the most time in the world to be able to unpack those kind of parts. So for me, I ended up actually disengaging and dropping out in year 11, but kind of took a space to reflect on where I am, what I was doing and had a big family that were kind of as I said, it's a blessing and challenge. Reminded me of who I am and what I stand for and what we're all fighting for. And from there, actually re-engaged and went to a VCAL Koori program in particular where it was set up around young Aboriginal students and supporting them through their kind of studies. And thankfully through that, it was all about how do we support you to get the best out of yourself. And pretty much from there, kind of just did my work, really kind of flourished in that environment and was fortunate enough to get a job straight out of there at the Yes Opta store and worked four years in telecommunications. Wow. Anyone that works in telecommunications, you learn many skills, customer relationships, obviously yeah. how to manage difficult situations and conversations. But for me, it was always, I had a longing to work with my community. And so, yes. like I said, in my spirit, I always said that to my manager at the time. I ended up starting as a trainee and working my way up to supervisor and second in charge. And he used to say to my manager all the time, there's going to be a day when I can get an opportunity to work in my community and I'm gone. <laughs> and we used to have a laugh and he'd be like, you better not. And I was like, no, nah, I'm going to. <laughs> and was fortunate enough at the time there was a job just going as a trainee at Madas, the Mallee District Aboriginal Services. And for me, it was just about getting my foot in the So I applied for that. And as my CEO would later on tell me, he goes, Sometimes in life we have to take a step back to take two steps forward. And for me, like I said, I was a supervisor and second in charge there, but I didn't care. I just wanted to get my foot in the door of a place where I wanted to work. And so, yeah, I was fortunate enough to get that gig. And from there, Excel on that traineeship, fortunate to take out a few awards through my studies as well, which is pretty deadly. But then from there, it's pretty much been the trajectory to where I am today. And like I said, for me, 
for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, I think our, our culture, our knowledge systems, you know, 80,000 plus years isn't coincidence. So yeah. through a unique understanding of kind of custodianship of land, of family, of care, and really built off the values of love, resilience, strength, just that unique understanding to come together for one, like, and really the collective, you know, that the reality is we're only as healthy as everyone in our family. And um, <clears throat> as I said today, for me, it's, we really need to honour those systems if we're to get anywhere as a nation and as a country and as a people, collectively mainstream and Aboriginal First Nations. And, you know, there's, there's such beauty in our culture. And so for me, I've really been able to understand that, have great family elders around me um, who guide me in where I am today. And, yeah, I think for Victoria, we're kind of in a unique position. Obviously, we've got the treaty up. Uh, well, treaty negotiations and the framework being developed, the truth-telling part, but as it relates to mental health, obviously for us there's a lot that's been done. You think about the atrocities that have happened since invasion and colonisation, um, there's a lot of trauma in our communities, but one of the things I've been talking about a lot is there's a lot of trauma in this country. The reality is for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, it's right there in our face, but... From a, from a mainstream historical point, we've been pretty good at sweeping a lot of the stuff under the rug of what's actually happened in this country, what's been perpetuated onto First Nations people. The truth's coming now is with the truth-telling. And so with that, I always say in kind of my yarns, it's, it's not this Aboriginal people's truth that we need to be telling. It's not about us understanding, because we do that. We do truth-telling every day. We do truth-telling to systems, to spaces that we exist in. But from a non-Aboriginal perspective, what's the truth-telling in yourself? What's the truth-telling in your organisation? What's the truth-telling in any space you exist? And what are you doing to be an agent for change for all people? Because First Nations justice starts with all people's justice, right? It has to be centred at the heart of everything we do. There's so much that we can learn from, you know, the years and years of experience, thousands of years, millenniums of experience with Indigenous people. Tell us about, because, the, I mean, the framework you spoke about today and you spoke about the trust, the knowledge uh, and the actions, tell us about that because I, I, when I was listening to you talk about that, I also felt like it was, you could almost, in fact, it should be applied across any culture, organisation, whatever it is you're doing, but there's so much stuff that is applicable to everything we do in life. So tell us about the knowing that's been in the Indigenous communities for so many years and how we can learn from that and use that. Yeah, definitely. I think, um, as I said, like obviously the Curious Council, the representative body for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander young people in Victoria and now been existing for 20 years, but we're such a young organisation in and of ourselves and we exist because of the leaders and elders in front of us and we always say we stand on the shoulders of giants. And when we were creating this resource, it was really funny. We, like I said, we, we went out to talk to community workers, young people around what are the enablers and what are the barriers to Aboriginal youth participation. So for young people to be genuinely and meaningfully engaged as decision makers and in systems that are meant to empower them. And what we realised was that the knowledge was quite baseline and that the reality was we couldn't just create strategies and tools. There was a lot of pieces missing and it came apparent to us that we actually need to look at this from a framework point of view and in and of itself it really reflected Indigenous values and our knowledge systems and so exactly that, like when we think about historically in most programs that are run, an organisation will be funded, they've got to go deliver on this action and then bang, they're off running and doing that. 
But for us, we challenge that in our theory for KYC and it's about, well, actually, first off, press pause. What's your values? Why are you actually going to do this program? Or why are you actually working with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander young people to begin with? Then from that, you know, we've got three areas of values. One is young people's participation, Aboriginal families, communities, culture, and then also self-determination. They're the values that we expect that you'll you'll be committed to and that you want to underpin all of your work. And then from there, we work on knowledge. And so it's underpinning the values. What knowledge do you need to have or at least be committed to obtaining before you actually run and jump to the actions? And when we thought about it, we started showing it and working with young mob around it. They were just like, this is deadly. Like, we actually want to use this and potentially be able to use this as kind of an audit tool, right? So we're actually empowering young people to hold organisations to account to an extent as well. So for them, they can be like, well, actually, do you have this knowledge? Or are you committed to getting this knowledge and what's your values? How do you actually want to work with us? And once again, I say that that's a really First Nations knowledge-based system because for us it's always been based off, well, what are your values? What's your ethics and how are you coming to this space and this place and where you where are you recognising how we both contribute to this? You know, there was a conversation before on co-design and I think that's a really important conversation but... Once again, some of the comments that were raised around normally when we see co-designing, especially in First Nations spaces, whose values is it on? Is it on your terms of reference or is it on Aboriginal terms of reference? And so that's another really important conversation. So I think very much underpinning everything that we're challenging spaces to Mm -hmm. do and really challenging structures is, well, what are your values? And therefore, it wasn't surprising why participation was low with a lot of the programs going on out there because... They weren't addressing it in the correct sequence of, or really looking at those values underlying. Yeah, exactly. And that, that's why we try to create it as a resource because obviously we never really wanted to, and we'd, we'd never want to create KYC to be the be all and end all, but how do we create an accessible resource and framework where anyone who's looking at this can automatically apply it to their work or their thinking or even, you know, in a sense, research? Because how is your research really empowering the people in who you're researching or what topic you're looking at doing? So... Yeah, there's a, there's a lot, I think, that can come from this piece of work, I believe. I've, I've <laughs> quoted it as a game changer and my team stresses yeah. out every time I say it. But I think it it's just that accessible framework that really puts it on a map and that I think it enlightens people, whoever see it. Exactly that, like the fundamental first part could be, wow, I didn't even recognise it. I'm jumping straight to the action. I'm not even thinking about do I have the adequate knowledge in this area to do this work or am I committed to obtaining that? What values am I basing this off? Am I doing this because government says I need to tick tick, tick the box? Or am I doing this because I know it's genuinely meaningfully going to be celebrated for young people, they're going to get something out of it and this is a true partnership? How do you think we're going in respects to the, you know, whether you call it co-designing with Indigenous people, but, I mean, giving them control and saying... You guys do it. This is, you know, what do you want? You guys do it and then tell us what you want. I mean, do you think we're down the path a little bit with that or you feel like we're just sort of scratching the surface? What, what's your thoughts on that? But a bit of both. Um, well, one of the things that's happened, right, is that co-design's almost kind of been a dirty word in a sense, especially in the sense of, I think, where, where I'm from, co-design's normally been on the basis of not our values or not on our terms of reference. So is it really co-design or you're already coming with what you want out of it? Yeah. So you're actually advising us. Yep. And so 
true co-design is true partnership, right? And so if we actually learn and really unpack and understand that, and there was a really great question that someone flagged and right at the end was unpacking each one, like co-design or is it advisory or is it co-partnership? But essentially co-design is genuinely meaningfully working in partnership with the other party. So he's come to the table, he's recognised where you both want to see things and so my answer to the question is we're not there yet, I don't think. And that's my personal preference, my personal kind of answer to that. But also in the work that I've seen too often we get kind of queries or people come to us and say, hey, we've got to deliver this. Can you go and yarn with young people or consult young people? And it's like, well, already you've consulted. You're, you're wanting consultants um, or you're wanting to consult young people. So they're not really designing this, are they? And to be honest, like... All orgs get caught in that trap because, yeah. you know, the wheel of how systems run is exactly around that. And that's why we really set this framework up because we want to challenge those structures. Let's mm. be the agitators that are needed in this space so that we start to create systems that really do empower all that are part of it. For us, obviously, that's First Nations young people, but I think broadly across the board, this can be utilised everywhere, right? Well, that's and that's when you're explaining it, and like, well, I mean, this really applies to so many different areas that should be adopted, you know. And starting with values, going to knowledge, and then and then going to action before just going straight to action. Because you also mentioned that mainstream focuses sometimes on the well, a lot of the times on the wrong things. You spoke about currency status and individual. Tell us about that distinction. Indian and how it relates to your mob and what you think should be done. Yeah, so um, um, just to give context to that, it was as more, once again, like I was flagging with First Nations knowledge systems and for me, really underpinning, once again, the values. So normally a lot of the time our communities are made on the values of community, family, and it's about strength, love, power, care, and care for all. But if you look at like Western systems and kind of the Western ideology of what that looks like, um, normally it's around success, it's around status, mm. it's around currency and power. It's a system of dominance, really. But systems of dominance don't support everybody. They normally support the people who are already there or on their journey to dominance. And that can't be the way of the future. So we really challenge that in the sense that, like, what are we really going to be adapting and creating processes and structures and enabling our policies even to really understand how do we work with all young people who come into our spaces and create a space that really genuinely and meaningfully recognises the unique skills, the unique knowledge and the unique lived experience that they bring to the table. And I would say this to anybody, anybody that's successful in their life can look back in the time and they will realise that throughout their youth or throughout their days as a young person, someone actually has practised youth participation with them, whether it was a mentor, whether it was your parents, whether it was a family member, that you've actively had someone in your life that has recognised the unique skills and experience that you bring to the table and has supported you on that journey. And that's not walking for you, it's walking with you. And what's the, because we, we hear the term meaningful engagement a lot, but tell us what does it actually look like, do you think? It's a good question. It's a deadly question. I always think meaningful engagement is on the basis of building rapport, building connection and establishing kind of... Listening? Yeah, establishing a deep 
connection and it all exactly that as you said starts with listening because how often do we see systems or processes in which we say we're listening to the young people young people speak up and say what they want and it's tap tap thank you kind of tap tap on the head thank you so much for saying that and then we'll come back next year and ask them to say the same thing Mm. but sooner or later there's got to be accountability on the systems and the spaces to actually implement what young people are saying and we say you know there's sometimes a saying in first nations communities that we're the most researched people in the world and you know the evidence and research will actually show that and so we're really mindful of that in particular when we work with our young mob, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander young mob in Victoria, that if we are starting to engage, how are we starting to really tangibly make that kind of action orientated or really see some outcomes based on it? And even exactly that, once again, agitating the system that if they want to do consults or they want to do some work, what's the outcome? You know, Are you actually going to genuinely see or work towards what young people are going to say because we can't just keep expecting young people to come to the table, say the same thing and not actually give them what they want to see out of it. So very much so, you know, deep listening is so important. You know, one of my uncles always says, you know, to hear is one thing but to listen is another Mm. because a lot of spaces can hear but do they genuinely listen and hold it and hold space for people and that's what we do, right? When you when you do meaningful engagement, you're holding space for the other party and you're making sure that it's a reciprocal piece of work and a reciprocal partnership process and that you just sit there and establish that real connection. I mean, we've spoken a bit about Kura Youth Council, KYC. Tell us about the organisation and the great work that they've been up to. Yeah, so we've been existing now since, yeah, 2003, as I said, we were established out of ATSIC. And yes, we initially started as the Victorian Indigenous Youth Advisory Committee and then about six to seven years ago changed their name to the Crew Youth Council, obviously in recognition of where we're located and the work we do. So yeah, I like to say that we're the deadliest org going. (laughs) (laughs) Obviously I'm biased, but we're so unique in the sense that you know, we're, we're an organisation for and by young people. We've got an executive of 15 deadly Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander young people who guide and support us on the work that we do and provide really unique advice in making sure that our work is grounded in what young people want to do. They co-design and work in partnership on the summits. So the summit's designed by them. Um, we go to them and say, what do you want to see? What is it going to look like? And they pretty much give us the space on how we go and create that. So that's something really beautiful that's the community engagement element of what work we do, but we're a policy and advocacy organisation, so we exist across social policy areas to make sure that we're, as I said, advocating and advancing the rights and representation of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander young people across whether it's education, health, justice, you name it. We're there to make sure that we're agitating these systems as well to make sure that, you know, in the back of their mind, or not even in the back, sorry, front of their minds is how does this actually... Um, translate to young people, how are we actively making sure that this system and these spaces recognise the unique role that young people play and then if it is an actual programmatic response or program, how is it genuinely designed with and for young people with community leading the way? And Indy, would you say some of the most, what the, the most challenges that you're facing as an organisation, is it really being able to get that systemic change embedded or is it or is it some other things that what are some of the biggest challenges that you face 
Yeah, I think some of the biggest challenges is strength-based solutions, right, and sustainable-focused outcomes. Too often, you know, and this is the world of government I'm going to talk about for in particular, is that once again it goes back to knowledge systems that they've got. They want to see quick wins. We kind of operate off a political time. You're going to get funded for, you know, they love pilotisation projects and demonstration projects and... We want to see, you know, this youth mentoring program or this youth program run for 12 months, not yep. understanding the values, not understanding the connections and building rapport with young people and what that looks like. But, yeah, obviously systemic change is needed. Uh, as, as I said today, our systems were built not for First Nations people. Our systems were built with yep. First Nations people on the side, if at all. So they, they were set up for a system of dominance, right, again. So there's a lot of systemic change that is happening and, you know, I'm kind of fortunate to live in Victoria because if you think about it, Victoria's kind of leading the way in terms of systemic change. As I said, we've got a treaty, the First Peoples Assembly, leading some really critical work around what does a treaty negotiation framework look like. Um, we've got the Uruk Justice Commission, which is, you know, starting to unpack what does truth-telling look like, what does justice look like all First Nations communities in Victoria. So the work's kind of happening, and, and as I said, we're the only organisation of our kind in the country, so for KYC to have a seat at some of the you know biggest tables, making sure that we're advocating for what young people want to see in the area, what young people want to kind of have told us that they want to be able to do, that's really unique. And because of that, we're seeing some really great things happen. Most recently, the Murram Nam Aboriginal Youth Mentoring Program has fully come over the KYC in which we support five Aboriginal organisations across the state to create um, and wow. deliver community designer-led youth mentoring programs. Wow, that's incredible. Hmm. Is that That's already started? Yeah, so it, it's been in operation for about four years now and it okay. was initially a partnership with Youth Affairs Council Victoria, KYC and the Office for Youth and throughout the whole time we've been working with Yakovic around understanding the role of Aboriginal organisations, understanding their role as a mainstream organisation and what does self-determination look like in this space. And to their credit, and obviously Catherine Ellis is one of the designers of this conference and a, a great friend of KYC's, through their work they recognise exactly that. Well, if this program is to be successful, it actually means that Yakovic steps back and we fully place this in the hands of Aboriginal communities um, and Aboriginal organisations. So, yeah, at the start of this year, KYC has taken over, yeah, full responsibility of supporting the five Aboriginal organisations. And, yeah, it's been pretty incredible. They support 15 Aboriginal and Torres Strait young people in areas, and part of the process is exactly that, talking with the young mob, making sure that they're designing and having influence in the decisions that are made at the programmatic response and how are they actually designing what that looks like as well. You you also refer to the importance or the impact that was it the circle of life or the the circle what was that what was that called that where we had the connection to It's the land, wheel of life. The wheel of life. But sorry. you could yeah you could re you can say the circle of life, Lion King, um, <laughs> shout out to that deadly movie. One of my favorites as a kid, still as a big kid <laughs> nowadays. But very much there's a Something that we always say at KYC is the wheel is life and the backing for that is for anyone that's going to tune into this podcast, you can go to the Nuggaji resource, which is our truth-telling report on youth justice. I think it's page 41 of page 43 in which we have the Aboriginal social-emotional wellbeing framework and it is created by the Australian Indigenous Psychologists Association 
And what it is is it, it really showcases what connection looks like at a social emotional well-being wheel and what holistic social emotional well-being looks like for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people because there's kind of that misconstrued concept that if you've got your connection to your physical well-being and your mental well-being then you're fine but for actually for us that's an alien concept um, as I said there's a the, the wheel illustrates that for all that we, not only do we need the connection to our physical well-being and our mental well-being we need connection to land, connection to community, connection to culture, connection to spirituality and ancestors as well. Mm. Um, and then also on, on the outer, like what are the determinants that are continually influencing and affecting our social emotional wellbeing? So you think about the cultural determinants, social determinants, political determinants. And for me, I, like I really love showing that wherever I go or wherever we go as Career Youth Council because it, it really puts into perspective Aboriginal social emotional wellbeing, right? But yeah. it also showcases what we need to do as services or anyone working in this space to truly understand young people yes. or understand our communities. And, yeah, there's a quote a while ago, I can't remember, I think it's on the Bringing Them Home report and it talks about whilst Australians today are not directly responsible for the atrocities of the past, it is a shared accountability that we understand what has actually come from there. And through understanding the true history of this country, we get a greater appreciation for where Aboriginal communities and Torres Strait Islander communities are at today and understand the unique and deadly role that we've played to make sure that we're still here and still strong. And then if you're going to work in this space, where do you be as an agent for change and making sure that that happens as well? Yeah, and you talk a lot about that agent for change and, and empowering people to go out there and actually create meaningful change, but but to stand up and actually try and influence change through whatever you, whatever way you can in whatever way of life. Is that correct? Yeah, I, I say that a lot because the reality is we're, we're 3% of the populations as First Nations people, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people here in yeah, what we call Australia. But the reality is that I know I can't change 97% by myself. We yes. need agents for change that are going to stand in the 97% and really walk with us. Also have the tough conversations in the, you know, at the kitchen tables or at the local party where something might be said that's, you know, as we know, deeply incorrect or comes from a stereotypical view. But the truth is, like I said, a lot of people in this country have been educated from such a rigid system that wasn't built with First Nations people mm. or truly tells the truth of what happened here. So how do we understand, how do we unlearn to learn and how do we start to be agents for change for First Nations? Well, because whenever we work, walk on this, you know, wherever we are, walk on country, you're on First Nations country, people that have existed here for 80,000 plus years. Mm. Over 2,500 generations have existed here. And as I said today, that's not something I should just celebrate. It's something this whole country should be celebrating, but celebrating appropriately and celebrating with mob. Beautifully said. Indian and that that framework you mentioned before about that connection to all the spiritual, physical, mental, family, land, culture. I mean that again, it's something that should be taken and applied across all people, right? I mean, when you're listening to that, you're like, that makes sense. There's so much to learn from that, isn't there? Yeah, and like I always love showing it because people see it and they're like, wow, it's such an accessible way of thinking and a way of like presenting kind of frameworks but once again and shout out one of the incredible creators of that um, framework is here today yes. at the conference Amanda Hart and people like Dr Clinton Schultz and Dr Graham G and Arnie Pat Dudgeon 
you know they're they're the people that have created this from research and for me it's yeah it's such an applicable way to look at social emotional well-being but it's such a once again I, I go back to the knowledge systems and it always is underpinned by values and so how do we understand what our values are as individuals, whether they're right or wrong, right? Because if they're wrong, then what are we going to do to right those wrongs? And then, you know, how are we going to make sure that we start to adopt the most, you know, commonality of values that is and that's around community. Yeah. Community at the centre of everything we do and love, right? Yeah. Yeah, beautifully said, Indy. And, mate, tell us what can – how can people get a hold of you? <laughs> Is that, what do they just Google KYC and then? Yeah, you can Google KYC or follow me on the socials. I've got Twitter. Yeah, we're, and KYC, we're on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, uh, you name it. Cool. What's the other one? LinkedIn. But yeah, you can try getting contact me. There's a joke at work. I'm not the most responsive person, but I am. If you jump on the Crew Youth Council website, we've got a, a way to contact us there and they come through cool. to the team. But I am responsive to an extent, but my team are the deadly mob that, Know, keep me accountable and make sure that we're doing the work that we're meant to be doing um, but yeah we're across all of the channels um, if you want to hit us up but also our websites as I said there's careyouthcouncil.org.a but there's also the the website for the Nuggagee resource um, which is the nuggageeproject.org.au as well and then soon there will be one to the incredible framework that I presented today but I can't just announce that just yet if you stay on our socials you'll see that announced follow the socials for that announcement then and then the last question i had for you was what other than that project as well what but tell us about this some of the exciting things ahead for you and the organization yeah this like i said that obviously that framework will be launched soon so that's quite incredible for us and that's the way which in the judge language stands for supporting young people resource so that's really exciting for us but as i said for any melbournean or victorian life for us has been pretty tricky over the last couple of years for us we're just really excited to get back out and connect face to face and do some community and yeah fingers crossed we'll be hosting our annual crew youth summit again this year face to face it's been online for the last two years and you know it's been beautiful that we've had the online capacity to engage but it's not the same especially for Mob, you know, we, 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 we thrive off connection. We thrive off those kind of spaces. So thankfully for KYC, we've already been able to catch up with our exec in person the other weekend, which is deadly down on Yorta Yorta. But for us, it's, yeah, getting back out, having fun, connecting with young, creating spaces. And for us at KYC, we're, we pride ourselves in the way we think about it is we're enablers and facilitators, right? So we create the space and we'll enable the space or facilitate but the magic actually happens in it with the young mob. So we're excited for that. That's exciting times, mate. And, and you, sorry, your, your other aim is to really roll it out nationally. Is that the end goal with that framework? We'll start Victorian-based yeah. first and a lot of work around exactly, the, obviously for us, we're a Victorian-based org, but we definitely recognise that this could be implemented um, yeah. across the country. And so for us, it's around how do we make sure we do it obviously in our own backyard and do it right there and but we're already starting the conversations as well as i said for us and today one of the questions was are the states and territories thinking about looking at a career youth council and thankfully there is a few and there's a lot of work that happens behind the scenes at kyc well Andy, congratulations mate it's been extremely insightful uh talking to you and hearing about your journey and your mob and what you're up to but also the great stuff you're doing with kyc so keep it up and mate thanks very much for your time thank you brother
Is there someone working in mental health who you'd like to be featured on the podcast? Are there more questions you want the answers to? Let us know what you want to hear. Get in touch with us by emailing any podcast suggestions to membership at anzmh.asn.au. And be sure to stay up to date on our socials at ANZMHA on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Thank you very much for listening, and we look forward to sharing our next conversation.